This is episode number 62 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. Unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's Individual Number One Pod. There is, as is almost always the case in this very chaotic time, a ton to get to. Uh, some of it is really horrendous news. Uh, all of it is uh, fascinating and important. Uh, so let's start with the bad stuff. And it's difficult to get a full grasp of what's really going on in Syria right now. But as we speak, Trump has announced that we are doing a full pullout of U.S. troops from Syria. This as Turkey has been attacking northern Syria Uh, going after the Kurds, uh, allowing, uh, it appears as if, ISIS to retake territory. Uh, There are even reports that Turkey has either by accident or on purpose or somewhere in between been targeting U.S. troop installations. Uh, There's no report yet that I've seen that a U.S. military personnel has been harmed as of yet, but we are cutting and running now. Full on, as opposed to the partial pullback, which was essentially an invitation for Turkey and uh, Trump's pal Erdogan, uh, who he has made a deal with many years ago to build a Trump Tower in Istanbul, which I think is an important part of this entire scandal. And this really is scandalous uh, on so many levels. But uh, before there was just a, hey, go ahead and do what you want to do. And now... Uh, It's totally cut and run, uh, get out of there, out of Dodge as fast as possible and wipe our hands of the disaster that is likely to occur in our absence. I mean, these are innocent people, the Kurds and some Christians uh, who are being killed or even massacred here. ISIS is being given carte blanche to regain control. Uh, People who have been imprisoned, ISIS... Uh, warriors who have been in prison, I shouldn't say even warriors, that's too much of a positive term, but scumbags, uh, are are now going to be set loose. Uh, Of course, Putin is loving all of this. uh, And it's just, it's just, the whole thing is just unbelievable. I mean, from, from every possible perspective, it's unbelievable from a humanitarian standpoint. It's inexplicable regarding the politics involved. It's colossally stupid from Trump's standpoint. It's it's stupid on every level. It's stupid from a policy perspective. It's stupid from his own personal survival standpoint. And in episode number 61, I expressed a, a, a passionate belief that this is so far beyond the realm of rational that there has to be, there has to be some unknown explanation for it. And I fight, I fight hard against conspiratorial uh, inclinations, 
uh, you know, that are so easily uh, fallen into when it comes to Trump because he's got so many nefarious connections all over the world. And I've fought very hard for the longest time that he's some sort of Russian asset and the whole Manchurian candidate uh, theory, which I still don't believe in a Manchurian candidate theory because that's just I don't know that logistically that that would be possible, and that presumes too much expertise on too many people's parts. And I'm just to presume, I presume that most people are stupid, uh, and it's very, very difficult for conspiracies to to be pulled off because someone's going to tell about them. Um, but when it comes to Trump's actions here, I have yet to hear anything close to a rational explanation. And when you think about it from a, a very simplistic standpoint. I mean, here's a guy who has been very soft on Putin and very soft on Erdogan and has personal ties uh, to both Russia and to Turkey. And here he is against the wishes of everybody else, including his own allies, including some of his strongest allies, like Lindsey Graham, people he needs to fight off the inevitable impeachment in the, in the Senate of the United States. Here he's pissing them off in ways that in a rational world would cause them to no longer support him. As pathetic as it is, Lindsey Graham is still somehow supporting Donald Trump. I mean, today he tweeted congratulations to Trump for being in favor of increasing sanctions on Turkey and Erdogan. I mean, what? Really? You cannot be serious. Lindsay, two weeks ago, this situation was under control. It's a crisis that was created by him. And now you're giving him public credit for trying to do something to partially clean up the gigantic mess that he, on his own, against the wishes of everybody around him, created. And by the way, the sanctions aren't going to bring back people's lives. They're not going to put the ISIS scumbags back in prison. This is not a situation where sanctions are going to fix anything. And it's most inexplicable that Erdogan is still scheduled to, as right now, to visit the White House in November. It's just flat out ridiculous. I have to tell you, I've been someone who has always believed that the only way that Trump's political position was going to dramatically change is if the average person could see some negative real-world impact to his actions, that he could be directly blamed for some sort of disaster that really mattered to people, that it wasn't just theoretical, it wasn't, you know, uh, obliterating the uh, the balance of power and separation of powers and, and crapping all over the Constitution and creating enormously dangerous precedents. I mean, people like me care about that stuff, but I'm in a very, very small percentage of people, especially among conservatives, uh, who used to pretend to care about this stuff, and they don't anymore because they're cash conservatives and they know where the audience is. So I'm, I'm one of the very few who actually really believed in this stuff. I was stupid enough, naive enough to actually think others did too. But it turned out I was one of a handful who really believed in the concept of constitutional conservatism. So I've always felt that there's really only way 
two ways this could happen realistically. One, you have an economic collapse. They could be tied, for instance, to the Trump tariffs. And we may or may not have that within the next year. Or you have some sort of foreign policy debacle. And you don't want people to die. You certainly don't, especially innocent people. And I'm not wishing for that at all. I'm just I'm looking at this from the outsider's perspective and saying, okay, well, could this have some sort of an impact? Uh, and, you know, as these pictures start to come back, I think that it will. Yes, uh, they're not Americans, at least not yet. Uh, and there will be Trump fans who will say, this is great. He's getting us out of a needless war. People, you know, like like uh, Rand Paul, who I can't believe I used to like, uh, you know, giving Trump credit for getting us out of a of another war. Well, that's not what was happening. I mean, we Americans were not dying there, certainly not on a regular basis. They they were compl- they were there to keep some semblance of order. That's what they were there for. So the idea that this was some and we didn't have that many troops there to begin with. And by the way, now we're we're lending out our troops as mercenaries for Saudi Arabia. Trump's bragging that Saudi Arabia is paying us for our troops. Wait a minute, that's not the way this works. We're not lending out our Marines as 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 mercenaries for for Saudi Arabia, but that's what Trump's doing. But anyway, I, I think this is incredibly from a political standpoint. It's not just wrong morally and, and in any other way, strategically. But it's also very dangerous politically from Trump's perspective because I – and I'm someone and anyone who knows about my writings or is a fan of this this podcast or my Twitter feed, what have you, I, I am absolutely in the category that, that Trump is about as invulnerable as anybody possibly could be because of the nature of his cult. I love the poorly educated. But this, I think, is dangerous. If this continues down this path – I I really I got to believe that even members of the Trump cults, not all by any stretch of imagination, but a percentage of the Trump cult is going to start rethinking this. Uh, they have to. I I, re- I and I'm someone who is very hesitant to believe that. I don't know what the percentage is. By the way, it doesn't need to be that much of a percentage to have a major impact, not on Trump being removed from office, but He's obviously facing re-election in 13 months, <clears throat> technically just less than that. Uh, if this goes as badly as it, as it could, and granted, you know what, a year from now, we probably won't be talking about it because our attention spans are so short. But if he starts to go consistently below 40% in his approval rating, which I think he might based upon what's going on here and the continuing scandal with regard to the U- Ukraine, and some worrying economic uh, information, I, I think that could be devastating for re-election. I, I, am, I have said numerous times that when it comes to Trump's re-election, he must maintain what I've referred to in a bizarre John Ziegler-esque uh, metaphor or analogy, kind of like uh, your kid going to the amusement park, where you got to be, uh, you know, say, 48 inches to ride the, the big rides. Well, he has to have that level of support, whether you call it 48 inches or whatever, and, you know, to put it in numbers terms, it's got to be in the 42, 43 percentile range of approval for him to be able to ride the ride. If he doesn't have 42, 43 percent of approval, it doesn't matter who he's running up against. If it's a if it's a two-person race, they're going to beat him, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or somebody else. He can't win 
if you've got a 38% approval rating, even in the Electoral College. And so that's the danger zone for Trump. And I don't know whether he's just so stupid that he doesn't understand it, if he's so arrogant, or whether there's something else going on here, that this is part of a much larger, more nefarious story that we don't have all the details on. And there's certainly an awful lot of smoke in that realm. And that, of course, leads us to the ongoing uh, Ukrainian scandal, which is going to get him impeached. He is going to be impeached. I don't know when that's going to happen, but it's going to happen fairly soon. And there were a lot of developments on that front this week. It's amazing how fast this story is going. Kind of like it's amazing how fast the turkey thing. I mean, wow. I mean, you know, that that really came out of almost nowhere. No one had any uh, semblance of, of warning for that. And, you know, it, and, and frankly, the fact that Turkey acted so quickly is highly suspicious to me. I mean, <laughs> there's some people who think that that happened because they were acting because they had mil- U.S. military intelligence that they were using, and they didn't want that to go stale. Uh, that's certainly possible. I'm not an expert in, in this realm, but it's just amazing how all of this has happened uh, so incredibly uh, fast and in a way that is not good for anybody, including for Donald Trump. But as far as what's going on with Ukraine, I guess the big story this week was the arrest of two of Rudy Giuliani's business partners, I guess you would call them, these Parnas and Fruman characters. I mean, these guys, you couldn't make them up in a movie if you wanted to. Uh, They were arrested the day after hanging out with Giuliani in the Trump Hotel in D.C. There's video of them together uh, hamming it up for the camera. And then these goons get arrested. They were heading to Austria. Giuliani was heading to Austria right behind them. That trip uh, got canceled. Uh, These are people who, who apparently have paid Rudy Giuliani to work for them as I guess a consultant, one of the companies is make, I cannot make this up, was called Fraud Guarantee. Fraud Guarantee. This is America's mayor. This is a man who used to be the most highly respected man in the country for a short period after 9-11. He was the time man of the year. And now here he is being paid by these goons who were arrested. And, and frankly, there's an awful lot of... Uh, very serious questions about what's really happening here. I mean, the bigger picture. Yes, in the short run, this you know Rudy, Rudy Giuliani is apparently under investigation himself, and this is going to cause all sorts of problems for him. It appears as if Trump is starting to throw him under the bus. I don't know if he's still my lawyer. Uh, we've seen the same thing happen with Michael Cohen. But uh, when you look at what the bigger picture here, there's there's certainly now the outline of a narrative that Rudy Giuliani was really doing in Ukraine what he claimed the Bidens were doing. This is the classic Trump thing of accusing someone else of what it is that you are doing. Because it certainly appears as if Giuliani and these goons had an incentive in the Ukraine to bring down this uh, oil gas company that Hunter Biden worked on the, the board of, uh, that to have them investigated because they were investing in a company that would have benefited from that. Now, again, we're, there's a lot of details that need to be filled in here. 
But if you're trying to figure out, okay, what's really going on here, you've got a multitude of incentives for people to to pursue corrupt uh, avenues of engagement. And uh, no one's been able to convince me that even the timeline of Hunter Biden's involvement or Joe Biden's involvement in all this is remotely uh, corrupt. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. But already, already there's more evidence that Rudy Giuliani was up to no good there than there is with regard to Donald Trump. And as far as Trump's efforts to get the Ukraine to investigate the Bidens as a quid pro quo, there's all sorts of new potential information there. We've got Gordon Sundland. Gordon Sundland is an interesting guy I referenced in the last podcast. He is scheduled now, against the wishes of the State Department, to testify to Congress about those, among other things, those incredibly suspicious text messages that he sent with another State Department official. This is a guy who was the UN, UN is the uh, U.S. ambassador to the EU, of which Ukraine is not part. So why he's even involved in this is inherently a suspect. But he is going to testify, according to multiple media accounts, that just as I told you, I told you this specifically in episode number 61, I said that when he says, after a five-hour delay in this now quickly becoming infamous text message exchange, that there, uh, there was no quid pro quo here, and he does this after having spoken to Donald Trump. So here's what happens. He's in this text message exchange. The guy he's uh, talking to uh, says it's ridiculous that we are uh, essentially, and I don't think he uses the word quid pro quo, uh, but we're essentially uh, making it so that Ukraine has to investigate uh, for our political purposes in exchange for the military aid. I mean, that's a paraphrase. There's now there's a five-hour delay before Sunland responds. And during that delay, we know he spoke to Donald Trump. So it didn't take a genius to figure out when he comes back and says, there's no quid pro quo here, or the president doesn't want there to be a quid pro quo, that that's obviously Trump telling him, tell him there's no quid pro quo. Not that there isn't a quid pro quo. He just wants it on the record that there's no quid pro quo. Well, it appears as if Sunland is going to testify exactly to that. Now, this is where it's probably a little too complex for the average American because they have to actually use their brains. And most average Americans either don't have a brain or don't like using it, and certainly members of the media are very much the same way. But in him testifying that it was Trump who told them there, w- there was no quid pro quo, if you use rationality, that's actually strong evidence that there was a p- quid pro quo because you have to understand the context and the timeline here. And I have to say that if there's one thing that's been really vindicated about my initial reaction to the phone call transcript uh, between Trump and Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, it's that it was obvious that a whole lot more was going on before and after this phone call than that w- than was just mentioned in the transcript. The phone call is a relatively small part of this entire equation, and now that is now overwhelmingly obvious. This thing was going on all the way into September with regard to Sunland 
and others in the State Department who were very upset about this issue of withholding military aid to Ukraine in exchange for some investigation of corruption or this company or of the Bidens. Now, this is where the mob element comes in because Trump understands how the mob works. And he did the same exact thing. This is where I, I, it drives me crazy that no one wants to revisit, or very few people want to revisit the whole Russian investigation. Here, they're using the buzzword of, cre- of corruption, right? That sounds, that sounds very cool. We're fighting corruption. No, corruption is a buzzword. It's, it's a, it's a made-up word to represent either the company that Hunter Biden was on the board of or the Bidens themselves. That's what it is. It's a po- politically correct, plausible deniability word. They, they, it's a code word. That's what corruption means. And how do we know this? Well, we have another example of the exact same situation. If you remember, the whole Russian scandal surrounded that infamous meeting in June of 2016 between Russians offering dirt on Hillary Clinton and Trump's own son, Trump's son-in-law, and his then-campaign chairman, who, by the way, is currently in federal prison. That was all supposedly about adoption. Remember? That was adoption. No, it wasn't. Adoption is code for sanctions on Russia. And the exchange was, the quid pro quo was, hey, look, uh, you, um, you make sure that uh, these sanctions on Russia are lifted and we will provide you with dirt on your opponent. Well, what does that sound like? That's the exact same deal he's offering Ukraine. And by the way, uh, there's other evidence with regard to Russia Far more than just that meeting that supposedly didn't go anywhere. I mean, you've then got Trump publicly asking Russia to look into Hillary's emails. Ha ha he he. And and maybe the most under-discussed clip in the entire Russian investigation, which again in itself doesn't prove anything, but in context certainly does. Go and research. I don't think, I don't think we have it on our board today, but we, I know we played it in the past. The The clip of Donald Trump taking a question... The first question he took from Maria Butina, the Russian spy, uh, about how he feels about Russian sanctions. And Trump is perfectly, for him, exceedingly well prepared for the question. She asks the question first at the event, and he he telegraphs that he's not in favor of Russian sanctions. And that's at the very beginning of all this. This is all on tape. This all happened very publicly, uh, which, again, if you believe that Trump is a, a pretty smart, savvy, uh, self-surviving mafia boss, is perfectly consistent with his M.O. So, you know, the, the, the cult, Trump cult and the cult 45 media are going to say, well, there's no quid pro quo here. Or they're going to find some sort of technicality. If you use your brain and you use common sense, you're going to realize that this is as obvious as it gets in the realm of quid pro quo. And Sunland's testimony is very much likely to further cement that. Speaking of testimony, I got to tell you, you know, it's going to be amazing when Maria Yovanovitch the uh, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, finally speaks publicly because she did testify, despite this, uh, the Secretary of State Mike Pomp- Pompano directing her not to testify. Now, how 
how he has any authority over her after she's been fired, I don't know. But she went in and apparently had all guns a-blazing last week in her private testimony to Congress. She testified all day long, lambasted Trump, made it clear that she was fired as the ambassador of Ukraine because she was mucking up the works, that she was preventing this kind of a deal between Ukraine and Trump for his own personal political interests. Now, it doesn't have much significance to the public because it all happened in private and all we're hearing is leaks and her opening statement and what have you. But eventually, it's clear to me, this woman is going to give an interview and it's going to be uh, lit. It's going to be gangbusters. This woman has been in uh, the uh, public service in the State Department for, I think, 33 years. She's got nothing to lose. Unlike uh, the old white men that have been involved in this story, it's pretty obvious to me this woman has not lost her balls. And she is is going to go after uh, Trump on this. And she appears as if uh, you know, she's got at least some of the goods. So she's a problem. And I think her testimony, Money, her being willing to testify in defiance of Pompano has probably helped Gordon Sunland have the guts to go ahead and essentially defy Pompano as well and testify. Sunland is a Republican, uh, but not a Trumpster immediately. He jumped on the Trump bandwagon late. He gave a million dollars to the inaugural fund of Donald Trump as a way of getting in Trump's good graces after not supporting Trump during the primaries. And so this is a guy who you know appears to at least have some semblance of a clue and a soul. Whether or not he's going to... Uh, uh, push his testimony to be more favorable to Trump is is not yet known. I mean, based upon the reporting on it so far, it does seem as if he's still hiding behind some semblance of support for Trump, not being willing to go as far as he should be willing to go, claiming that he had no idea that this issue even had anything to do with the Bidens, which most people uh, seem to think is is unrealistic based upon how much of a cause for concern this was. This was not something that was just brought up one time. This has been this was brought up uh, continually over an extended period of time, and there was some reporting about this. Uh, and so Sunland is apparently claiming that he was ignorant to that. Whether or not people will believe that is yet to be seen. But the point here is there's a lot of people that are willing to tell their story. And it's going to be damaging, but I don't see this as the realm that is most dangerous to Trump. Because, again, you know, it's testimony. You have to believe these people. They'll be discredited as being anti-Trump, although it'll be tough to do that uh, with Sunland, but people, I'm sure, will try. Uh, you know, testimony can be dry. It requires context. It has to be public. So far, there's been nothing on television. If it doesn't happen on television, it doesn't really matter. Uh, heck, we don't even have a transcript of, of the testimony so far. So even though it's significant when it comes to the facts, and, you know, we used to live in a world where facts mattered. I don't see a lot of what's happening in in this realm as all that significant, except for when it comes to the fact that it will lead to his impeachment in the House of Representatives. That's not what's going to change the equation in the Senate. I, I really don't believe that any one person's testimony. Now, if there's an overwhelming number of people and you start having White House officials coming forward, Look, if John Bolton comes forward, I think that's significant. There was a story out this week that when the phone call with Zelensky happened, it was essentially a, a, a firestorm at the White House, that there were at least four 
uh, White House officials who had their hair on fire in reaction to this. Well, if all of them eventually come forward, then then that's going to be a problem. Uh, and, you know, that'll be dependent on the political circumstances of the time as to how significant that is. But we're not there yet. And a lot of times this happens in a domino effect. You've got to have one person give the next person the courage to do it. Then they come forward and then somebody else has the courage. And there does appear to be some semblance of a domino effect. But it's just beginning and it has to continue for it to have any real impact down the road. As far as uh, other stories are concerned, there's several other that I want to mention. Trump announced on Friday a partial deal with the Chinese when it came to uh, our trade agreements. And uh, the stock market went way up, and then it kind of came back down once the actual deal was announced because it was a substantial phase one deal. And, of course, you have to trust Trump, and no one actually uh, trusts Trump on anything. Correct. So, so the idea that you know the stock market is going up hundreds of points based upon Trump's perception of a potential deal that hasn't even been officially reached yet is pretty hilarious. Uh, but what I find interesting about the Chinese deal is two things. Number one, this is classic Trump, where he is trying to fix a problem he created. Let's be clear. He created the problem, and now he's going to try to take credit for having sort of somewhat fixed it, all, or at least not allowed it to become a total catastrophe. Uh, and that's just bogus on its face. But even more important than that is the way he went about this was totally wrong. And the Chinese are the ones that are saying that he went about this totally wrong. There's a Financial Times story in which the Chinese expressed relief that Trump waited so long before engaging in this trade war with them, which makes total sense. Because who's under pressure now? It's not the Chinese. It's Trump, because he's the one facing re-election. So the the harm done by the tariffs is going to hurt Trump a hell of a lot more politically than the Chinese, who ain't going to be facing any re-elections. So if their view is that if Trump had done this immediately, he would have had a couple of years in which he could have fought this trade war without being vulnerable to a re-election campaign. But then he waited to the very last moment, of course, he thinks trade wars are easy to win. They're not, especially when you don't have all the leverage. And you certainly don't have the leverage when you're heading into a re-election campaign. So Trump claims, of course, to be this great negotiator. It's exactly the opposite. Correct. He's a terrible negotiator. He wimps out always at the end. He'll always go for a bad deal, especially when he doesn't have leverage. He doesn't have leverage here. He'll probably claim in the next few weeks that he's fixed this problem. Uh, but I don't buy it. Uh, I'm sure we're going to end up in a, in a situation that's nowhere near uh, as good as it could be or should be or certainly would have been if Trump had done this correctly. Now, there's been uh, a major development with regard to the Colt 45 media, as I refer to it, the state-run media. And that is, of course, Fox News Channel is the leader of the state-run news media. The state-run news media consists mostly of Fox News Channel, the Drudge Report, uh, a few other conservative websites or quote-unquote conservative websites, and talk radio, of which I used to be a major part. Uh, well, uh, of the few voices within that state-run media at Fox News Channel that was willing to go against the, the grain and to actually tell the truth about Donald Trump was Shepard Smith. And Shepard Smith, who hosted the, an afternoon show 
a news program on Fox News Channel. It's a guy who I don't agree with totally. I think he's, frankly, a little too liberal for my blood. He's, he's super pro-global warming, uh, which I, I'm not a believer in catastrophic man-made global warming having been proven to the point where we can do anything about it even if we wanted to. Uh, but he's definitely full-on into the whole uh, global warming craze. Uh, I, I interviewed him once many years ago when I was doing radio in Los Angeles. He seems like a nice enough guy, talented guy. He's definitely a very talented anchor. Well, uh, he's been uh, engaged and has been in the last several weeks, engaged in a little bit of a tit-for-tat with other Fox News Channel anchors over this whole issue uh, of uh, impeachment and the, the facts surrounding it, and people have started to go after him. Well, he shocked the world on Friday by announcing that he was going to immediately be leaving Fox News Channel. Immediately be leaving. Now, that's important. As someone who's been fired more than a few times in the media business, uh, Shepard Smith has been at Fox News Channel for 23 years. He's exceedingly well-respected. If he was really just leaving uh, and retiring and wasn't feeling at least somewhat forced out, there would be a grace period. Uh, There would be a, hey, I'm leaving at the end of the month or whatever. There was none of that. This was a total shock announcement at the end of a Friday. And uh, here's how he ended his his sign-off, which I found to be very interesting and, frankly, incredibly depressing because it's my sense that he's uh, expressing a hope here that he has no reason to believe will actually come to fruition. And I think it's my interpretation that he is essentially uh, running the epithet for for journalism, at least at Fox News Channel, because he is leaving. But here's how Shepard Smith signed off on Fox News Channel on Friday. It's been an honor and my pleasure. Even in our currently polarized nation, it's my hope that the facts will win the day, that the truth will always matter, that journalism and journalists will thrive. I'm Shepard Smith, Fox News, New York. Yeah, my, again, this is my interpretation, but I don't think Shepard Smith believes that's going to happen. I think he's, he said it was a hope because he knows that that's not the world we live in anymore. Uh, instead, we live in a world where Lou Dobbs on Fox News Channel is saying things like, Have a great weekend. The president makes such a thing possible for us all. So Lou Dobbs, still on Fox News Channel, blatant propagandist, sucking up to Donald Trump, leading member of the cult 45 media. But Shepard Smith felt so uncomfortable that he had to leave, had to leave right before the president's impeachment and what is likely to be our most contentious presidential election maybe in history. I mean, no news person is going to voluntarily, totally on their own volition, just say, you know what, I'm going to spend some more time with my family in the next 13 months because this is a really good time to take off. Nothing's likely to happen in the next 13 months. We're only going to have the president of the United States impeached. There's going to be a Senate trial. By the way, it's an Olympic year, among other things. Uh, you got the, this incredibly contentious presidential election coming around. I'm going to choose this time period to take off. <laughs> yeah. That's that's not that's not what's happening. Uh, I don't think know if he was. I don't think he was fired. I don't think Fox News Channel wanted him to go, uh, but they weren't willing to protect him to the point where he wanted enough protection to to feel comfortable staying, and so he left. And Fox News Channel is worse for it. Journalism is worse for it. 
And I, I wrote in the Mediate column, which you can find at our Twitter feed, Individual One Pod, I wrote an immediate uh, column for Mediate where I said, you know, one of the things that uh, is important to point out here is that Shepard Smith leaving Fox News Channel makes it almost impossible, barring massive new developments, that Donald Trump is going to be removed from office. And you're thinking, well, how is that related? Well, in a way, this is almost like uh, Mitt Romney resigning from the Senate. I don't think Romney's going to be nearly enough to to get any kind of coalition of serious Republicans to vote in favor of Trump's removal. But I can at least see Romney doing it. And Romney doing it would theoretically give enough cover for maybe one or two others. You need about 20, so that's not going to happen. Well, Shepard Smith performs very much the same role at Fox News Channel, or at least he did. When Shepard Smith says something or gives credibility to a news account or, or debunks a false news account, it gives cover for anyone else at Fox News Channel who had an inclination to do the same thing. People like Judge Andrew Napolitano or Brett Baer, maybe, or Chris Wallace. It also gave potentially down the road somebody else cover, like, a you know, Britt Hume used to have a, a conscience and a soul. He no longer has it. He sold it to Trump. But, you know, he might try to theoretically buy it back at some point. And if Shepard Smith was there, it would give him some semblance of cover to do so. That cover is now gone. Nobody is going to jump off the Trump ship now that Shepard Smith is gone. It's just not going to happen, especially since his leaving is going to be perceived at least within Fox News Channel, is happening because he dared to buck Donald Trump. It's kind of like if Donald Trump had been able to leave a bleeding horse's head in the bed of every person that works at Fox News Channel. They're not going to risk their gig over this. Shepard Smith got bounced, so they're not going to go outside the herd. You go outside of this herd, you get run over. Trust me, I know. I have the tracks on my back to prove it. So Shepard Smith being gone ends any real chance that Fox News Channel was going to dramatically shift on Donald Trump. Because if that was going to happen, they would never have let Shepard Smith go. And they would have told Shepard Smith, hey, just hang in there. Uh, This is all going to turn out okay. Shepard Smith knew that wasn't going to be the case. That's why he's leaving. There's no other explanation for why he would leave under these circumstances after 23 years. So I found that to be very significant and probably more significant than any other major media personality development uh, in recent times, maybe even in modern times, depending on how this all turns out. There was another situation that I wrote a column about, which, again, you can find at Individual One Pod, our Twitter feed, about Elizabeth Warren. Now, if you're a fan of this program, you know I I do not like Elizabeth Warren. I think she would be a bad president. I think she is not qualified. I think she is way too liberal, progressive, almost socialistic. I also think she presents Donald Trump with by far the best chance of being reelected of any major Democratic candidate for many, many reasons. Not just the fact that she's way left, but also because of her background, having come from academia, uh, the whole uh, Pocahontas, Pocahontas situation, which I think she's going to get uh, destroyed on by Trump in the general election. And I don't think most Americans are fully aware of the fact that she was claiming to be a Native American absurdly throughout most of her career in a way that had helped advance her academic career. 
I just think she provides all sorts of opportunities for Donald Trump. I mean, the history of liberal Democrats from Massachusetts running as the Democratic presidential candidate are not good. Uh, I mean, even John Kennedy was was no liberal in retrospect. Uh, but when you look at Michael Dukakis and John Kerry, uh, so I'm not a fan of Warren's. And last week, uh, CNN on Thursday held this absurd town hall on uh, on basically gender and LBGT issues. And basically it was just an event for all the Democratic candidates to show how uh, in favor of uh, the rights of, of LBGT and uh, other people who are in that realm, uh, you know, which to me politically makes no sense. I mean, I'm just looking at this purely from a political standpoint. If you're trying to win a presidential election where you're trying to appeal to people in middle America, uh, I mean, the people who are being appealed to in this town hall are already going to vote against Donald Trump. There's no chance uh, they're going to vote for Donald Trump to begin with. Uh, so this is this is basically an exercise in giving the Trump campaign lots of fodder for a general election. And, of course, there's two people who they want fodder on more than anybody, Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. Well, Elizabeth Warren, I believe, gave the Trump campaign uh, a huge political weapon. Uh, there, are, Most liberals do not agree with me on this. In fact, they vehemently disagree with me on this. In fact, they agree, disagree with me so much that it makes me think they must know I'm right because otherwise they wouldn't be so upset about it. But here's the clip to which I'm referring. And it's incredibly important to point out. The clip here is technically about her position on gay marriage. But I am not concerned about her position on gay marriage. I don't care about gay marriage. Uh, I, I really couldn't care less. At this point, it's a set issue. I don't think it drives that many votes in either direction anymore. I think it's essentially a political wash. However, in her response to a, a question that it's important to point out is not uh, portraying the questioner as some sort of an, a homophobic bigot but rather someone who is very sincere in their belief based upon tradition and faith that marriage should be between one man and one woman. And by the way, that's a huge number of people, especially in the states that are going to decide this election. A huge number of American voters sincerely believe based upon tradition and or faith that marriage should be between a man and a woman. They, they might uh, say it's okay for you to disagree with that depending on their particular views, but it's based in a sincere belief. That's important because the way she reacts to this question and to the theoretical questioner is in no way, shape, or form respectful. In fact, in my opinion, it is disdainful. Now, liberals loved this interchange between her and the questioner. But listen carefully, and you have to get the, to, to get the full gist of it, you have to actually see the video. But the audio is good enough to you'll understand uh, where she's coming from and, 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 and basically where, why I find this to be uh, disdainful of the, of the person who is asking the question. Now, the person who's asking the question is not in favor uh, of uh, or not, is not someone who's against gay marriage. They're, they're on her side. In fact, when you listen to the question, it's important to point out, if you listen carefully, the person actually puts on a little bit of a southern accent while they're asking this theoretical question. So they're pretending to be someone who's on the campaign trail. 
Not them. They're not the ones asking the question themselves. They are playing the role of somebody who's asking a very sincere and legitimate question of her about the issue of gay marriage and whether marriage should be just between one man and one woman. So with that context, listen to this interchange uh, between Elizabeth Warren, some people say, and I'm agreeing more and more every day, the Democratic presidential frontrunner and a questioner at this CNN town hall last Thursday. You're on the campaign trail and you're I approached. Have you have uh, been, yes. no. uh-huh. <laughs> and, a, and a supporter approaches you and says, Senator, I'm old fashioned and my faith teaches me that marriage is between one man and one woman. What is your response? Well, I'm going to assume it's a guy who said that. <laughs> And I'm going to say, then just marry one woman. <laughs> I'm cool with that. <laughs> Assuming you can find one. All right. Now, uh, the liberal hearts were going pitter-patter there. I mean, Saturday Night Live uh, praised uh, Warren. And by the way, they, they used part of that interchange, but not the part that was the most offensive, which indicates to me Saturday Night Live has the NBC uh, comedy show has essentially chosen Elizabeth Warren as their candidate because uh, they're going to protect her. They portrayed that in a in a very positive way. And I, I get that the liberals love that. It's saying it seems Trumpian. She's fighting back. She's dropping the mic. She's being funny. Uh, people, you know, liberals can see her going up against Trump and they're like, I want more of that. Give me some more of that. OK, well, here's the problem. There's two problems with that answer. Again, has it nothing to do with gay marriage? I can't believe I have I have responded to so many people on Twitter in the last three days on this issue because I've actually been quoted in the Washington Post and I wrote a column about it and I've tweeted about it. So I mean the twi- the the Twitter Elizabeth Warren uh, cult has been all over me for the last three days. I have responded so many times that this is not about gay marriage that that literally when I type that on my Twitter, it types the rest of it for me. When I start typing, this is not about the words gay marriage automatically now come up on my phone. I'm not exaggerating. This is how many times I've done this. It's not about gay marriage. Okay. It's about her disdain for Christian men. And she expresses it twice there. The first thing she says, which expresses disdain for Christian men is, I'm going to assume it's a man asking the question. Why? Why would you assume that? There, there, there was nothing in the question that indicated it was a man. That was gratuitous. You're saying, Elizabeth Warren is saying, only a man would ask such an obtuse question about why it is that I uh, don't believe that marriage should only be between one man and one woman. That, to me, was was unnecessary and maybe more of an indication of her true beliefs than even what she says at the end, which I'll get to momentarily. But for you to automatically presume that it's a man that was asking the question indicates to me you got a problem with Christian men. Because that it's, it's so important to understand for context. This person is not portraying the questioner as some sort of knuckle-dragging homophobe. This is a sincere belief, and I'm not even in this category. I don't care about the issue. 
I don't even consider myself a Christian. I grew up Catholic. I now refer to myself as a recovering Catholic. I'm probably agnostic or some level of atheist. I don't care about this. What I do care about is whether or not she's going to be able to beat Donald Trump or whether she should be able to beat Donald Trump in the two states that matter most, Pennsylvania and Florida, where there are a hell of a lot of rural Christian males. And by the way, a lot of them aren't white. A lot of them are black, where this is a major issue in the black community. That's why Proposition 8, which was a pro-traditional marriage proposition here in California, passed overwhelmingly in 2008, back when Barack Obama was still pro-traditional marriage. It's largely because black people voted for it. And so this is this is an insult to Christian males. And then she adds to the insult with the, if you can find one, as if why in the world would anyone marry someone who was such a Neanderthal, uh, so obtuse as to still be believing in traditional and faith-based views of marriage being between one man and one woman? That's a problem. And the liberal media establishment, which is now fully invested in Elizabeth Warren, doesn't want to admit it. Her cult doesn't want to admit it. And I got to tell you, I learned a lot in the last three days, having been the focus of the Elizabeth Warren cult. Number one, I got to tell you, the Elizabeth Warren cult is no better than the Trump cult. They might be slightly more well-educated than the Trump cult. I love the poorly educated. But they are just as mean, just as nasty, just as dumb in many ways as the Trump cult. They are remarkably similar in the way that they go about things, at least on Twitter. And I'm aware that Twitter is not real life. I have to tell myself that a hundred times a day. Twitter is not real life. Twitter is not real life. Twitter is not real life. Uh, it's just the top one or two percent of most passionate people. And that's why they're on Twitter. And so that distorts reality to a certain degree. But the number of people I had that fit into this category it was scary. So number one, the, the Warren cult is a lot like the Trump cult. The Warren cult, I now believe, hates Christian men more than Elizabeth Warren seems to hate Christian men, based upon uh, my interaction with them. But more importantly than even that, it is now clear to me that the liberal establishment, the media, the passionate people within the Democratic primary, they are all in on Elizabeth Warren. And it's going to help Trump. That's part of what I wrote the column about. And that is that the media is enabling Elizabeth Warren. They're not seeing this through the prism of how swing voters in key states are going to see this. And this is a ready-made Trump commercial. What The clip I played for you is 42 seconds long. They could make that easily into a one-minute commercial with some commentary surrounding it for context, or they could cut out some of the applause, and make it into a 30-second ad. It is perfect for an ad. And I believe that both men and women, and both blacks and whites, are going to find that to be, in, in certain elements of society, are going to find that to be offensive. So many people said to me, but John, those people weren't going to vote for her anyway. You know what? Maybe not. But guess what you just did? Now you've given them an extra reason to go vote for Trump because there's a lot of people who might have sat home. There's a lot of people who might have said, you know what? I've had it with Trump. I don't really like Warren. I'm not going to get my ass to the polls. 
But you know what? That Warren girl, she that woman, she she really upsets me. She she bothers me. She I fear her and what's going to happen to men like me if she's president. At least I feel like Trump has my back. I'm not a bad person because I have a penis or because I'm a Christian. So that's going to make people get to the damn polls. And that's why he won in 2016, because in Florida and Pennsylvania, people who don't normally vote got to the damn polls. That's why I was wrong about Trump winning Pennsylvania. I had spent enormous amounts of time in central Pennsylvania. I totally saw that they would be Trump people, but I never thought they would get to the polls. I thought they'd be too uh, busy doing crystal meth that day. Uh, But they weren't. They got to the damn polls in huge numbers. And it's going to happen again if you give them a reason, if you give them a reason to be scared, if you give them a motivation to put up with more of Trump's bullshit. And that's what Elizabeth Warren does. And I was amazed that this Washington Post reporter, a female who wrote the column or the article in which I was quoted, seemed to get that. And that was the only mainstream article I saw that said, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, maybe Warren is uh, making a mistake here. And by the way, the amount of, pl- of applause that she got, both literally in that room, as well as from the media reaction, as well as from Saturday Night Live, you know, what's that co- you know what that's going to do? Because you, Elizabeth Warren is a, is a human being. She clearly loves positive affirmation. You know what's going to happen? She's going to do it again because she got applauded the first time. So she's going to do something like this again. In fact, it might even get worse. And, and the Trump people are sitting there salivating. They're salivating. Oh, my God. They, they you know, I'm sure they were orgasmic in, in, the, uh, in, in the room that the Trump team has where they're taping all this stuff. I am guarantee they put this on multiple hard drives to make sure they did not possibly lose this clip. And it's going to be a commercial. Uh, and I think it's going to have an impact. Now, people keep saying, well, that, the whole election is not going to turn on that. No, but... We're talking about a theoretically very close election in very few states with a very small number of malleable voters. This is a problem. Now, again, it's only a problem in beating Trump if he's still viable, if he's still potent, if he's still in that 42, 43, 44% of, of approval range. He might not be. It might not matter. It is quite possible Anyone's going to beat him because of what's happening in Syria, because of the Ukrainian scandal, because of how impeachment might go down. We don't know that. It's incredibly dangerous to presume it. You should not be presuming that in November of 2020, this is going to be the environment. You know what? The economy might still be strong. Impeachment might be in the rearview mirror. People will have forgotten about Syria. He's got incumbency on his side. There's a, a lot of money on his side. He's got weapons. And if you really don't want a second term of Donald Trump, guess what? There's an option. It's called Joe frickin' Biden. It's not the most exciting option, but it'll get you out of the damn fire. Joe Biden wins. By the way, Hunter Biden has announced that he's stepping down from Chinese company board and will not uh, participate in any kind of uh, similar boards in foreign countries as long as his dad is running for president or is president. Uh, I'm a big believer that this Tuesday debate coming up is huge, huge. We, we overplay these events so often, but uh, the, the, the bases are set up loaded for Joe Biden here. He has got to at least hit a double or triple, ideally hitting a home run if he wants to win this nomination. If he does not take advantage of the bases being loaded for him because of the news involving Ukraine and having an enormous opportunity to knock it out of the park on Tuesday during the debate, uh, then I think Elizabeth Warren will 
be the favorite going forward, and it will be her nomination to lose. And if she wins it, then uh, there's really only two scenarios. Either Donald Trump wins re-election, which would be catastrophic, or Elizabeth Warren <laughs> wins the presidency, which would also be catastrophic in a lot of ways. So on that happy note, that'll do it for this edition of the Individual One podcast. The numbers for uh, Trump being removed from office or being able to rema- maintain his uh, to presidency through the second term and re-election have not changed very dramatically, although the circumstances still have uh, are continuing to change and will, obviously will continue to go in that direction, especially as we head towards impeachment. But as of right now, I'm going to put the number... The chances of uh, Trump being removed from office or not being able to finish his first term at 13 percent and his reelection number is down slightly largely because of the Syrian situation and that that disaster uh, emerging and the impact that it could and likely will have on his political standing. I'm going to put that at 43 percent, despite the fact that Elizabeth Warren is increasingly likely to be his opponent, which is exactly the opponent he wanted, which is exactly why we had the Ukrainian scandal to begin with. So that'll do it for uh, this edition of the Individual One podcast. Until next time, uh, please make sure to remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this show via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual One Pod. My name is John Ziegler. Until Wednesday, you're listening to the Global Story Network.